If we're not willing to endure the onslaught of the mob, it's probably because we're part of it and most likely find ourselves opposing God. But it doesn't have to remain that way. God is gracious and merciful and receives every repentant sinner that turns to him. All it takes is the faith of a child to stand up and to speak the truth. Your idols are exposed and are foolish. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Welcome to the Godly Troublemaker Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Parker. The Godly Troublemaker exists to shine the light of Christ in the eyes of the idols of our day. Let's go get into some trouble. Introduction. It's a tale that's been told at sundry times in diverse manners. Perhaps a tale as old as time, like Beauty and the Beast. Though this tale did not originate with Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor Has No Clothes was certainly popularized by him. It's a tale of a vain, consumptive king who cared much more for stuff and things and things and stuff than he did for the governing for the good of his people. Now, you could put a D or an R in front of his name, but the end result would be just the same. This vain king's desire to cover all of his insecurities made him susceptible to two lobbyists, I mean swindlers, but then I repeat myself, that made their way through the king's city. These swindlers made it known that they were weavers. And weavers as they were, they only weaved with the most magnificent cloths. Cloths that were so magnificent and so uncommonly awesome that when they weaved these cloths by their hands, they would appear to be invisible to anyone who was unusually stupid or to anyone who was unfit for their office. This would be perfect for the king. Not only would he be clothed in the awesome attire, which his awesomeness deserved, but he would also be able to see at once who was unfit for their office and who was the idiot in his kingdom or who were the idiots in his kingdom. This would be a win-win for him. So the king passed an executive order immediately and bankrolled the project right away. Obviously a wonderful investment for the kingdom. So the weavers got to work with all of their weaving and like any good government project, they needed more resources and more resources and more and more resources along the way. Now, the king, being no fool, sent honest men to check on his investment from time to time. As these honest men beheld the non-existent clothes, they feared being found a fool or unfit. So, being as honest as they were, they reported back to the king of the overwhelming beauty, glory, and splendor of the emperor's new clothes. Well, the day finally came for the emperor to get all gussied up and to clothe clothe his awesomeness with an equally awesome outfit. Well, to the king's surprise, he couldn't see the clothing either. But knowing himself to be quite awesome, worthy, wonderful, and fit and intelligent, he kept this one to himself, stripped down to his skimpies, and had these fine weavers clothe him in clothes that were fit for such a king. As all the king's noblemen gazed upon the king's splendor and his junk, knowing themselves to be fit and intelligent, they told the king how amazing he looked in his majestic new clothing. Well, it was now time for the king to parade through the streets so that all of his subjects could behold the wonderful majesty of his splendor and glory. As the king made his way through the streets in triumphal procession, 
with a full crack in the back and a full Monty in the front, everyone being afraid of being thought the village idiot or of being thought unfit, ood and odd at the results of the election. I mean, after all, this was the most popular king the kingdom had ever known. Until it came to one child who was not aware of the town's evangelical sensibilities and proclivity towards niceness at all costs, blurted out with a loud voice, he's not wearing anything at all. So even though he was sternly warned to keep quiet, I do fancy that he was laughing pretty hard as he said it a couple more times. He's not wearing anything at all. All it took was one truth to be told to spread through the crowd like brush fire, to not only expose the vanity, self-deception, and stupidity of the king and his nobles, but to also expose the rank weakness and cowardice of the townspeople for fear of being canceled and called a fool. Now, I'm sure not everyone in the town and amongst the intelligentsia was happy about said exposure. Not at all. After all, we're told it's vulgar to point out one's vulgarity in such a vulgar way. And who gave that boy permission to talk about politics anyway? I'm also sure that some were so upset they labeled this troubled little boy a troublemaker. It was Orwell who said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. As Christians, we are not revolutionaries, but we are reformers seeking to take back everything that belongs to our king, which is everything. Wait, you mean everything, everything? Uh, yes, we mean everything, everything. And as we run into the town filled with bloated bureaucrats bragging about their baubles and fawning evangelical townspeople, desiring the attention and the affection of said bureaucrats with their balls hanging out, we find ourselves like little children declaring the truth that Jesus is Lord while exposing their idolatry for what it is, vulgar. As we do so, we joyfully run the risk of being called a troubler of Israel, knowing full well that the very sensible evangelicals amongst us will protest that we are not acting very much like Jesus. And incensed as they are, it should be noted that said incitement comes from the use of the word balls, not from the fact that said balls are swinging low, sweet chariot, all the way through our government buildings. Godly troublemaking is biblical. Let me just start by twisting all of your niblets into a bunch of giblets by saying that godly troublemaking is not only biblical, but it's necessary for obedience to Christ. And not only that, but it's necessary for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, nobody likes conflict, and evangelicals in particular, especially hate it. In fact, they will do almost anything in their power to avoid it. Regardless of how many doctrines they have to compromise or how many pronouns they have to f use along the way to find favor with the cool kids. But herein lies the problem. As long as they maintain holding on to the title Christian, they will never be acceptable or accepted at the cool kids' table because the cool kids understand something that the evangelifish don't. And that is that Christ demands everything. You can sit at the table of demons or the table of Christ but you cannot do both, and they understand that. So they will never, ever be liked at the cool kids, by the cool kids, or be able to sit at the cool kids' table. And now the cool kids can't even try to respect them because there is nothing respectable about them. They've become like a wet blanket over a warm turd. 
but enough about Russell Moore. Now, my point being that a little bit of compromise on the front end, couched in doublespeak, or if you will, couched in evangelical speak, never ends well in the rear end. If you begin with compromise, you are only going to end up with a lot more of the same. Compromise. And this is exactly where we find ourselves. Decades upon decades of compromise within the church. As the emperor of secularism and statism struts down the street with his balls hanging low, swinging from side to side, evangelicals are fawning all over themselves, telling the emperor how amazing and wonderful and amazingly wonderful it looks. It's grotesque. But enough about government education. The last thing they would ever want to do is to create trouble. And given Romans 13 and all, we should close our churches as to ensure that nobody gets the flu or a cold. And it's painfully obvious from the pages of sacred writ that Jesus would have masked up and would have everyone quadruple vaxxed because it's about science and love you jerk. And don't you love your neighbor, you racist. So as the emperor struts his stuff, teaching the merits of anal sex to five-year-olds in government schools, and evangelicals grovel away as the parade moves on, though occasionally they attend a school board meeting or two, one can't help but get the overwhelming impression that it's not the trouble in principle that they have the trouble with, but rather its object. As is the case with worship, so too with trouble. It's not a matter of whether, but which. It's not a matter of whether or not you will worship, but which God you find yourselves worshiping. It's not a matter of whether or not you are going to cause trouble, but whether or not that troublemaking is going to be godly. In an ungodly world, the pursuit of godliness is always going to cause trouble to those who want to persist in their ungodliness. Now, if someone is in a deep sleep and would prefer to remain that way, and you shine a bright spotlight in their face, they don't say, thank you, that was awesome, and you're very winsome winning me with your winsomeness. Unfortunately, when you remove the fear of God from the equation, the fear of man looms large. Quote, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. End quote. Galatians 1.10 Because we cared more about how people received what we said than about the content of what we actually said, we found ourselves friends with the world and enemies with God, and we are completely unaware of it. We would prefer to go along with the mob, regardless of how remarkably stupid or grotesque it is in full view of our children, than have those same people think, us a fool or unfit, all the while confirming our foolishness and our unfitness as we try not to look below the emperor's waist. Quote, Tolerance is the virtue of a man without conviction. G.K. Chesterton. One of the greatest problems in the church today is that we do not understand that for those who hate God, love for God is arrogance, and for those who love God, hatred for God is arrogance. These are not what we may call reconcilable definitions. The non-negotiable standard is the standard given to us in Scripture. When we commit ourselves to this standard a priori and are determined to resist all ungodly attempts to define arrogance 
a strange thing happens. Much of what we have previously assumed as arrogant is suddenly seen as humility and vice versa. This brings us to the place where we can recognize that we had been seduced to an unbiblical definition of sin. And Isaiah pronounces a woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Douglas Wilson, A Serrated Edge, page 24. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. First Kings 18, 17 through 19. Now, before Elijah slaughtered the false prophets at the brook Kishon, he made sure to mock them and their gods. Quote, and at noonday, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. 1 Kings 18.27 Both Elijah and Ahab considered the other a troublemaker, and so they were, but only one was godly. That is to be our aim, not troublemaking, but godliness. And in the pursuit of godliness, we will cause trouble in an ungodly world. It's not hard to imagine someone responding to this example with, that's not nice, and that's the Old Testament, with some accusation of misogyny and racism thrown in for good measure, and don't you know that Christianity is a religion of love and not hate, and that is hateful. Now, as far as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, fully equipped with skinny jeans and a man bun is concerned, the only place that Jesus exists is in a poster in Russell Moore's house right next to his life-size poster of Barack Obama. Or maybe that's his poster of Tristan, world-renowned male supermodel. Either way, there was no greater troubler of Israel than Jesus, who was God incarnate. For those who hate God, those who speak the truth, look like troublemakers. Quote, the Pharisees openly recognized and feared that. You are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. He didn't care about their opinions. He had a reputation of refusing to kiss up to the cultural elites. In fact, he regularly mocked them. And this brave faithfulness was perceived as authority, not bravado. The people were astonished at his authority, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. His disrespect of the surrounding idolatries produced fear and conflict and ultimately seduced the Mediterranean. Douglas Jones, Appendix, A Serrated Edge, page 122. Jesus regularly mocked the cultural elites. He called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He mocked the way they prayed, prayed and tithed. He said they were children of the devil. He used every form of verbal weaponry at his disposal. Satire, hyperbole, generalization, metaphor, parable, mockery, name-calling, and the like. This was not peacekeeping, but it certainly was peacemaking because it exposed all of their ungodliness and idolatry. Now you may say, 
Yes, but that was Jesus. And that's my point exactly. Jesus showed us how to do it and who to do it to. Now, this is not a green light to be an obstinate jerk or to fly off willy-nilly at anyone who disagrees with you. However, this is a green light to pursue godliness, a godliness that bites, and to fearlessly proclaim the word of the Lord and the glories of his gospel, knowing full well that this will incite provocation in some and certainly vexation in others. Well, praise God that their emotional disposition is not our destination nor our aim. Godliness and faithfulness are, quote, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 15-17 Conclusion If we're not willing to endure the onslaught of the mob, it's probably because we're part of it and most likely find ourselves opposing God. But it doesn't have to remain that way. God is gracious and merciful and receives every repentant sinner that turns to him. All it takes is the faith of a child to stand up and to speak the truth. Your idols are exposed and are foolish. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Before you go, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review, which is very helpful for us. Until next time, demolish strongholds and go cause a little godly trouble.